0: Thank you for downloading the weekly sermon from Trinity Reformed Church in Bloomington, Indiana. To find more great content, please check out our website at trinityreformed.org. Enjoy the sermon. Please open your Bibles to Psalm 25. The last couple of weeks, there's a, there's a book that I did not know what I was getting into when I said it was trash, and it, it's trash. But the minute I said it was trash, all of a sudden, everybody started saying to me, oh, we, we were just given a copy of that. Joseph Helt out in Evangel Presbytery out west of here, he said, yeah, I got boxes of that book offered to me by Crossway if I would just have reading groups and stuff in the church. Some rich guy had bought these to be distributed to pastors, you know, and then, and then a couple pastors that I'm close to told me they'd read the book and it was very helpful to them and everything. And uh, some of you know what I'm talking about. When it was criticized, there were a number of women on Facebook who said, I think that book's good. And then they said, that book was helpful to me. Well, it's a book that, that, that lies about the character of God by saying that Jesus is more gentle and humble, then he is righteous and powerful, just or wrathful. In other words, it pits the perfections of God against each other. And so this guy keeps saying that, you know, Jesus, if he had a webpage, you would pull down the thing about, and his about thing would be gentle and humble. And he has it in all caps, which in a book is way beyond an exclamation mark. All right, And he said, it's, Jesus would say that gentle and humble is what makes him get up in the morning. That's a quote. Well, you all know that all of us are susceptible to that. We're all very susceptible to that, and we all think that that's what we need to hear. All of us. Why? Well, it's because we have all bought into the notion that we're weak and that we're weak because other people have done us wrong. You have to get those two together. We're weak, we're weak because people done us wrong. Put them together and in our weakness, which we say is other people's fault, what do we do? Well, we get very aggressive with our weakness and we, we resist any notion of having to be afraid of anyone or anything. And of course, the way we live our lives is the way that we pray and the way that we have our relationship with God. So when it comes to God, we are resistant to any idea that we should fear God. We're resistant to that. And it's because we're so weak. We think, well, I'm already weak. And and Jesus is just gentle and humble with people like me because I'm weak. You all with me? And in a sense, that's true. Okay? Jesus is gentle and humble with the weak. Not more than he's holy or omnipotent or wrathful or condemnatory, judging. That's the error of the book, right? But here's the problem. If I cry "Ole ole in free to this congregation spiritually, are you with me? Ollie ole in free, do you want to put a number or a percentage on how many people should receive the "Ole ole in free and how many of us shouldn't? Like you, this morning, do you feel that your pastor should give you after this past week an Ollie Ollie Infree? And my guess is you would say no. What about you? What about you? What about you? You see, for me to just send out there an olly all in free and say that what is most essentially Jesus is gentle and humble of heart, okay, is in effect an olly Infree. in free. And it's okay to give it, and I could name some names in this congregation, okay, And I could name people that we would probably almost unanimously agree they should be taught the gentleness and humility of Jesus. Okay? But that group would not be the same group as the people in this church that claim they're weak and they need to be told Jesus is gentle and humble. And that's the nature of Preaching in books and pastoral ministry. Again and again, pastors and elders have, and Titus 2 women have to say to you, no, actually, you should not be told that Jesus is gentle and humble because you aren't weak. What you are is aggressive. Your weakness is your hostility to the world. Now, come on, about other people, you understand that, right? You've seen how people, I remember when the ADA Act went through, American for Disability Act. And I started watching every single curb be replaced with a ramp. The whole country! And I thought to myself, wow. That's one aggressive lobbying group. And then I thought, Isn't this interesting? What they have done is made it a right to not have people help them. And so nobody can help them anymore. And that's the point. That's what I mean by aggressive weakness. This last week, any of you ever watch or read Lifehacker, the New York Times site? So this last week on Lifehacker, they put together a list of of, uh, tweaks of the human body Ten of them, I think it was. And they were listing which ones are effective, which ones aren't. One of the tweaks was cochlear implants. okay, So that people that can't hear have an implant and they're able to hear. They said that an awful lot of the people who've had them put in don't like them because the implant is noisy. It is, you know? And that it's harassing. They can't stand it. But the real... Uh, uh, um, what's the word? The real um, controversy around cochlear implants is what? And they proceeded to say that the differently hearing community, I'm not sure how to describe the community. Differently hearing, you know? Like, I'm not colorblind, I'm differently seeing. (laughs) But anyhow, the differently hearing community is divided between those who think that you should admit that no, no hearing is bad and those who think that it's just another way of living and that it should be protected because there's nothing wrong with it. Are you with me? And this is how we are. We all are determined to define our disabilities, to remove them as being disabilities, to make them a principle of our lives To make ourselves victims and then to oppress everyone with our victimhood. Jesus is meek and gentle of heart to the weak. Can we all agree on that? You are not weak. You are oppressive in your precious disability. You know, you understand what I'm saying? People come into my office and they tell me what's wrong with them and what I need to do to heal them. And I say, well, I don't agree with what's wrong. And they look at me and they say, don't you think I know myself? And I say, I don't think you know yourself. (laughs) You know. (laughs) I really don't. Neither do the elders, neither do the saints, two women. I don't think you actually know yourself. And so I'm dealing with all these people online who are saying, I know what I need and that book was what I need, but the book is false teaching about the nature of God, his perfections. It's false. That's it. But everybody knows what they need and what they need is just to be comforted, just to be encouraged. They need all the soft traits Of divinity. Right? Are y'all with me? And in the middle of me watching this go on, all the all the presumptuous, complacent, fat, rich American Christians of whom I am one. I read this psalm. You ready? You ready? So here's this psalm. A psalm of David. And we know what about David? He is a man what? After God's own heart. Okay? To you, O oh Lord, I lift up my soul. <laughs> oh, my God, and you I trust. Do not let me be ashamed. Do not let my enemies exalt over me. Indeed, none of those who wait for you will be ashamed. Those who deal treacherously without cause will be ashamed. Make me know your ways, O Lord. Teach me your paths. Lead me in your truth and teach me. For you are the God of my salvation. For you I wait all the day. Remember, O Lord, your compassion and your loving kindness, for they have been from old of old. According to your loving kindness, remember me for your goodness' sake, O Lord. Good and upright is the Lord. Therefore, he instructs sinners in the way. He leads the humble in justice. The humble. And he teaches the humble his way. That was so healing to me. The humble. All the paths of the Lord are loving kindness and truth to those who keep his covenant and his testimonies. For your name's sake, O Lord, pardon my iniquity. For it is. It's what? It's great. Who is the man who fears the Lord? He will instruct him in the way he should choose. His soul will abide in prosperity and his descendants will inherit the land. The secret of the Lord is for those who fear him and he will make them know his covenant. My eyes are continually toward the Lord for he will pluck my feet out of the net, turn to me and be gracious to me for I am lonely and afflicted. The troubles of my heart are enlarged. Bring me out of my distresses. Look upon my infliction and my trouble. And what? Forgive all my sins. Look upon my enemies, for they are many, and they hate me with violent hatred. Guard my soul and deliver me. Do not let me be ashamed, for I take refuge in you. Let integrity and uprightness preserve me, for I wait for you. Redeem redeem Israel, O God, out of all his troubles. Father, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of every heart here be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our strength and our redeemer. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So I was, I was going to wimp out with you the second congregation after doing it the first congregation, but I decided I'm not going to wimp out. Anytime you come to a discussion of what is true and false in terms of theology and doctrine, women need to be aware that you are more prone to being deceived. This truth is clear in Scripture. Scripture. It is one of the most avoided unspoken scriptural truths that the world has ever seen. In 1st Timothy 2 it says it was not Adam who was deceived. It's saying something about Adam to say he wasn't the one deceived. It's also saying something about Eve that she was And one of the things I notice in this battle over the doctrine of the perfections, the attributes of God, is the fact that women say over and over again that the book helped them and it's a good book because it helped them. And how could I as a pastor not think immediately of the statement of scripture that false shepherds run around finding weak women who are burdened with guilt and they prey upon them. I mean, can we please allow scripture to have some authority when it comes to sexuality? And can we please have a congregation where the men feel an extra burden to protect the women from false doctrine? And the women enjoy it. And admit they need that protection. I mean, honestly, is this rocket science? Now here's David. And David is a good antidote, a good vaccine against all the cheap, false teaching about the nature of God. And David's a man, he's a man after God's own heart, and David killed lions and bears, and lots of Canaanites. And David is also known by his restraint in not killing God's anointed Saul. I mean, that may be really much more the bravery and courage of David than anything he did on the battlefield, <laughs> you know. <laughs> I can't imagine myself ever not having availed myself of those opportunities, you know. <laughs> I don't think Saul would have been living after he went aside, as it were. And so David demonstrates to us godly, not personhood. Godly manhood. And so women and men alike be instructed by what he shows us. Now, what does he show us? Well, You, O Lord, to you, O Lord, I lift up my soul. Who does he lift his soul up? I know it's an obvious question. To Yahweh, to God. It's to you I lift my soul up. Oh my God, in you I what? Trust. So he lifts his soul up and he trusts. I had a baseball player in the second row in the first service. And as I was saying this, I was thinking about David and I was thinking about baseball. So if you play baseball and you're out in center field and there's a high fly ball, right? You get your mitt up, you you fix your eye on the ball. You don't take your eye off the ball, but what happens? Well, if it's a short fly, you run the risk of the second baseman, the shortstop, the first baseman, or the left field if you're in center field or the right field. You run the risk of having your eyes on God, right? And trusting in him You don't take your eyes off him and you're so vulnerable, right? Because all these people are running around and you can't take your eye off the ball. That's the position David's in. He's trusting in God, his salvation is in God, and then what does he say? He says, Do not let me be ashamed. Do not let my enemies exalt over me. You're perfectly vulnerable when you live with faith in God. Everybody knows your eyes are on God. And everyone hates it. And so David says, I'm completely vulnerable because my eyes are on you. You're my salvation, I trust in you, protect me! I don't know who's coming at me, but I know they're coming at me. You see, you can't be self-protective and trust in God. And that's the problem today. (laughs) We're all so convinced that we're so beat down by all the people that done us wrong and we're so weak that we're like the most aggressive weak people the world has ever seen. And we're so determined to protect ourselves. Is David protecting himself? No, he's looking to God, he's trusting in God, and then he says, God, protect me. I know they hate me, but I only have eyes for you. You see this? This is the Christian life. This is the Christian life. Look, I'm not denying that you've been hurt and people have done you wrong. That's not my point. My point is if that teaches you that you can't trust anybody, you're not a Christian. Because a Christian, at his essence, is someone who trusts God. You can't be self reliant in a Christian, you can't be self protective in a Christian. You can't go through life a victim and a Christian. You can't go through life oppressing people with your weakness and be a Christian. (laughs) Now you might say, oh, are you saying Christians are perfect? I'll play along. No, I'm not saying Christians are perfect. And then you say, well, can't one of the sins we have being self-reliant? I say yes. You say, see? I gotcha, run rings around you logically. And I said, no, you didn't get me. That's never how language works. If you're self-reliant, you're not a Christian. Well, see, there you go again. Are you saying Christians are perfect? I say no. (laughs) You say, well, so could one of our sins be that we're self-reliant? Yes. Could you be a Christian in sin? Yes. Could you be a Christian in sin and self-reliance? Yes. See, run rings around you logically. And that's the way, that's the stupid way we think today. We think if we find an exception to the rule, it blows the rule to smithereens. I am telling you that Jesus himself says that you have to deny yourself and take up your cross and follow him. That is what it means to be a Christian. You have to trust him. This is the work that his father wants from us to believe in him if we're believing in ourselves and protecting ourselves and not being vulnerable to other people and to God, we are not living by faith. That's what I mean by not being a Christian. Don't press it to the nth degree. Listen to your pastor, to your shepherd, and ask yourself whether you live by faith or by sight. All right, you with me? David says, to you, O Lord, I lift up my soul. O oh my God, in you I trust. Don't let me be ashamed. Don't let my enemies exalt over me. And then he says, indeed, none of those who wait for you will be ashamed. So he comes back to this issue that he only has eyes for God. He's completely dependent on him. He trusts him. Don't let me be ashamed. Then he says, yeah, nobody who trusts in God is ever ashamed. Then he says, those who deal treacherously without cause will be ashamed. Now, when we get to this word shame, we have to be very careful. Because again, the world is a liar. And the world will tell you that it's a sign of an old type of fuddy-duddy Christian, whoever talks about shame. That shame is something that nobody wants to feel, nobody wants to use. It's just bad karma. Right? And if you say, well, no, I think shame should be attached to uh, homosexuality. You know, you just, let's just say you decide, you know, it's like February 29th. And you decide it only comes around once every four years. I think I'll just confess my faith just once. And so you say, no, actually, homosexuality is a matter of shame. Right? But don't worry, it's February 29. You won't have to do it again for four years. Are you all with me? Everybody okay with that? If you say that, what will they do? they'll immediately shame you. (laughs) Don't take your eye off the ball. Ever since Adam sinned and he and Eve tried to cover their nakedness, there has been a fixed amount of shame determined by God. We can't escape it. The only question is, who will have the shame? Those who hate and oppose God or those who honor and obey him? Right? Right? There will never be less shame. The question is whether you should be ashamed for fearing and honoring God or whether they should be ashamed for glorying in what is a perversion, right? You see this? And so don't let them intimidate you by telling you that it's shameful to use shame. And you just say, well, you just said it's shameful for me to use shame. And they say, well, it is. It's shameful. You say, well... You're shaming me. They say, no, I'm not. You're shaming yourself. You know, they'll come up with something. You know. So David sees the controversy, and he knows that either he will be shamed or the wicked will be shamed. He sees it, and he says, they're the ones. The people that deal treacherously without cause will be ashamed. It's a confession of faith, people, Make me know your ways, O Lord, teach me your paths. Lead me in your truth and teach me. For you are the God of my salvation, for you I wait all the day. And so here David is depending on God, living by faith, being vulnerable because he lives by faith, being very aware of how many people hate him because he lives by faith being very aware of how many people who hate God hate him because he lives by faith in God. Are you with me? He sees his insecurities, his weakness, and his vulnerability, and he says, I I ain't going to change. You know, he's stubborn. To you, to you, to you. And then he says, you know, nobody who depends on you is ever put to shame. And then he says to God, God, show me your ways. Now, why would he say, show me your ways at this point? the reason he says show show me your ways is that David is in desperate straits. David is really hurting and fearful and God is not showing himself to David at this time and you know that because of what David is saying. David is saying show me your ways. This means that God's ways are hidden from him. This means that David says that God never abandons those who belong to him and that it's the wicked who will be ashamed. But immediately he turns and says, show me your ways, O God. Now why does he do that? Well, he does it for the same reason all of us do it when we're in a a terrible condition and when God has hidden his face from us. Which is, we begin to be tempted to go all over the place anywhere but God. You know, we're tempted to take our eyes off him and to begin to self-medicate. You know, to give ourselves to hobbies, to work, to uh, raising the perfect children. We begin to try to solve our anxiety, our weakness, and our pain and suffering, and our fears with something other than God. And so David's praying and he's saying, God, show me your ways. Teach me about yourself. Open up your perfections to me. God, take my attention and bring it to you and then show me something. Now, think about this for a second when we ask God to show himself to us, is it as interesting as Netflix? You know, the great competitor for prayer and God today is entertainment. We're so rich that it's not even work. (laughs) And so do you think that if God showed himself to you that it would be entertaining? Another way of saying that is, do you find the record of God's actions in the life of man recorded in scripture entertaining? Come on, laugh. I mean, it's absurd. It's so far beyond entertaining. As high as the heavens are above the earth, so far are his thoughts above our thoughts. I mean, if being unable to predict one single thing Jesus ever said, is not entertaining. I don't know what is. I mean, no woman likes a husband who's perfectly predictable. They can go too far in the other direction of never being predictable, and that's that's a pain. But I mean, have you ever been able to predict anything scripture says? Have you ever been able to predict how the story's gonna work out in the end? I mean, think about it. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And, and then, <laughs> you know, I mean, who, who would come up with the fall? And then who would come up after he said, in that day you will surely die, that you eat it? And then God says, you know, I'm going to show you a way. Who would ever have predicted that God would clothe them? Who has ever predicted anything that Jesus ever said or did? Recorded in the four gospels. How is it that we find entertaining the entertainment that Hollywood gives us and that bands and the the Sarcassians or whatever their names are. You know, the one that divorced hoo Jiggy. Are they entertaining? I want you to think about the degree to which you find God interesting, right? David is convinced that if God will open up his character and habits to David, it will get his mind back on trusting God and away from his self-pity. And so he says, "Show, show me, show me, show me. You ask God to show you, Himself to you? It's a scary thought, isn't it? You know, do you really want God to show Himself to you? I think an awful lot of the false shepherding that's going on today is pastors trying to keep God from showing Himself to their people. I know, you're looking at me like I've got a hole in my head. But I'm absolutely convinced of that. I think that we as pastors feel the need to package God in a way that keeps you from being scandalized about who he is. That's certainly the record in scripture of the religious leaders. They do that over and over and over again. Could we handle God showing himself to us as a congregation? And the answer is no. We could not handle it. Except through the power of the Holy Spirit. For you I wait all the day. Remember, O Lord, your compassion and your loving kindness, for they have been from of old. If a man is asking God to remember his compassion and loving kindness and reminding him that there's a whole history written about it, That man is in desperate straits. You ask for that because you don't see God's compassion and you don't see his loving kindness and you want him to return to them, right? For they have been from old. Do not remember the sins of my youth or my transgressions. You know what's interesting about that? part of the prayer is that for years I thought that that meant that there was, the sins of your youth are particularly awful. And so you need to ask God specifically to focus on the sins of your youth because of how awful they are. But that's not what it means. The reason David asks for God to forgive the sins of his youth is that he's no longer young. So then why would he do it? Well, because he has no question that God understands that he sinned today, and that he sinned yesterday, and that he sinned a week ago, and he sinned a year ago, and he sinned a decade ago, right, you with me? In other words, the sins that are up close are not sins that David is feeling like he has to remind God of to have forgiveness. The sins that David wants to leave behind are the sins of his youth. I mean, honestly, after 10 years, can't we be done? You know? And David, he wants a clear deck with God. He says, forgive me for the sins of my youth. And of course it includes everything up to the present moment. David is not dealing with God cheaply. He's not saying that God's going to give him a mulligan for his youth. He's saying, forgive everything. Forgive everything. According to your loving kindness, remember me for your goodness sake, O Lord, again. Why is he asking for God to remember him? He's asking for God to remember him because it's clear to him, God, as What? has forgotten you. And honestly think about yourself right now. You do think that God has forgotten you. God hasn't forgotten you. And so say to God, God you know it 's kind of like this: say to God, god, you haven't forgotten me, H- have you? <laughs> Lord, I believe, help my unbelief God, you haven 't forgotten me have have you have you? And this is the prayer that is truthful and honest in our inward parts, and therefore the prayer that God hears. And answers. Try him. You remember that favorite text that every preacher preaches on. You know, test me in this and see if I won't pour the wealth of heaven out on you if you'll give that pastor Tim Bailey 10%. You know, in Malachi, you know, you've robbed me, you've taken my tithe. Well, I'm not telling you to test God with tithing. I'm telling you to test God by saying to him that you want him to show himself to you. Test him by saying, God, don't forget me. You know? Verse eight, good and upright is the Lord. David is having trouble praying. And the way he's motivating himself to continue his prayer is by self-talking the character of God. And he needs that because it'll keep him praying. So he reminds himself, good and upright is the Lord. And we have to do that when we pray. Therefore, he instructs sinners in the way. He leads the humble in justice and he teaches the humble his way. That's one of the parts that just really was such a comfort to me the last couple of weeks because the internet is filled with people who have no humility, none. They simply speak ex cathedra like the Pope. They have no ability to be wrong it's inconceivable to them that they could be wrong because they feel that way and feeling is as deep as we get. And that's pride. And it's a special kind of pride called solipsism which is to live as if you're the only person in the universe. And that's who everybody is today. We're all solipsists. And we just judge other people. Don't listen. Don't change our minds. We don't even bother having arguments. It's a inane. Why, why would you argue when my truth is my truth? And so we're so proud. We're proud of our wounds. You know, it's not like, hey, come on into the bathroom and I'll show you my scar. It's like, guests arrive, hi! <laughs> you know? <clears throat> we're so proud today And we don't have any reason to be proud. I have no reason to be proud. I want you to know that I have endless reasons to be thankful. And I'll also grant you that a lot of times somebody saying that they're thankful for something can can resemble pride. One of my favorite things about pride, and thank goodness I had a father and a father-in-law who were not proud and who took every opportunity they could to pop the bubble of famous Christians pride. Do it publicly, privately, wherever they could. They just, they'd go around, you know? And so at the end of his life, I've told you this, I'll tell it again, my father-in-law is what, 80, I don't know, 88, 86, somewhere around there. And at this point, he's fairly feeble, but he's still going into work at Tindy House every day. And so they want to interview him because everybody in Wheaton respects him. Everybody at Wheaton College, you know, they know Ken Taylor. And so they go to interview him for the magazine. And in the interview, they ask him the question At the end of your life, is there something that you're proud of? And his response is Well, some people tell me that I'm humble, and that makes me proud. And I'm telling you, that's perfect Ken Taylor and it's perfect Joe Bailey. It's just perfect. That's the kind of men they were. God delights in revealing himself and showing his character and nature and using the humble. (laughs) And for some of you, that is exceedingly good news. Uh-huh. and for some of you that's exceedingly bad news now at this point in the first service I consciously looked in a certain direction at a certain individual and I kept my eyes fixed on that individual who was sitting almost exactly where my daughter Heather is two over maybe she was on the and I looked at her and of course at this point, I'm talking about humility, and she's like, oh no, I must be a very proud woman. And I, went her, I said, no, actually, it's not that you're proud, it's that you're humble. That's why I'm looking at you so nobody else can say that I singled them out. Now, do you want me to look at those of you who are proud? You know that you tell everyone how proud you are. And you know, everybody gets the message. The thing that I find amazing about this church, years ago I used to brag about this church to other pastors, and the thing I would brag about is how many children we had. But not anymore. Now you know what I brag about, is I brag about how humble this congregation is. You imagine the joy of being a pastor preaching to humble sheep. You imagine the torment of being a pastor who preaches to rich sheep. You know the joy that Jürgen von Hagen takes in his congregation? It's hard to talk about anything with him without it coming up. Do you know who his congregation are? Do you know that most of his congregation are refugees from what, Iraq, where else? Nigeria, Sudan, Ghana. Jürgen is gaga about his congregation. Why? Is it because they have the same skin color? No, that's not why. Why? Because Jürgen loves God, and anyone who loves God loves the humble. I tell you again and again and again that what gives me strength to preach is having Rachel, having Beth, having Rita Cuffey, having Ginger in this congregation. You say, well, why is it all women? Well, generally, I've found that women are more willing to be humble than men. Now you wanna you want argue with me about this, I just made a sexist statement. I just mentioned women who my wife and I are intimate with the suffering. And there are some of you sitting here that I'm not gonna mention, but you see. And you look at the women of this church who are humble, humble. It doesn't mean they don't sin. And you think, do you think that those women know the character of God better than you do? And the minute I ask that, you're going to say, yes, I do. (laughs) You know? Because it's so obvious they know God. The patience of them. The sort of Lack of any glamour. Now sometimes that can be a fault. All right? Unfortunately, I brought up specific names, and sometimes, sometimes I wish they just would dress up a little bit more. <laughs> <You know? laughs> but they're not pizzazz, you know They're not hoping they'll get on the bestseller list with their first-person narrative about them being victims, and people cut them wrong. You know, you know what I'm saying. And so when I came here and I thought of this congregation and then I think about Christians and I think about different cities of Christians. Some cities are filthy proud. Bloomington is the most disgustingly proud city even more than Carmel. Right? Would we all agree? Except maybe Bedford. That's a joke. Ulytic but that's only because he's there no you're not there anymore you're now yeah where? Swiss City? huh? Springville Springville. okay he instructs sinners he leads the humble in justice and he teaches the humble his way all the paths of the Lord are loving kindness and truth to those who keep his covenant and his testimonies For your name's sake, O Lord, pardon my iniquity, for it's great. Did you notice this is the second time? Did you notice this? Pardon my iniquity, but not just pardon my iniquity, for it is great. Now, does David have the right to ask God for forgiveness when his iniquity is great? You say, well, of course. This is in the book of Psalms. I say, okay, good. You saluted the flag. Now, is your iniquity great? You say, yes. I say, so do you have the right to ask God to pardon all of your iniquity because it's great? And you say to me, well, I'm not sure that I want him to forgive it. And I say, well, why not? And you say, well, because I don't want to think about it. Right? And I say, well, but if you were willing to think about it and take it to God in prayer, do you think he would pardon it? And many of you would say, I'm not sure. And I say, why? You say, well, because I'm not sure, but I just don't think you can just, I don't think grace is cheap. I think that I haven't really been living for the Lord. And so would you, would you baptize me again? I want to recommit my life to Jesus. So if you get rebaptized again, then you'll really mean it this time and you won't have great iniquity to ask God to forgive. Are you serious? Do you think there's any point in your life when you're not going to have great iniquity to ask God to forgive? Whoever lied to you about that? David, my iniquities are great. (coughs) Are you with me? Can you lower yourself to be as bad as David? Can you have a relationship with God that's like David? Are you willing to lower yourself to that? Can you just depend on God's forgiveness? Can we, in our families and marriages and in the church, just depend on God's forgiveness? And you say, well, I used to, but I don't anymore because people take advantage of me. And my response is, you think people take advantage of you, you wouldn't believe how you take advantage of people. And you say, oh no, 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 I am I am the sore thumb of the universe, I am he who has been done wrong. And I'm just not gonna forgive anymore. For your name's sake, O Lord. It's very interesting. He says, for your name's sake, because that indicates that the honor of God is at stake with the forgiveness of God. Do you see that? For your name's sake, forgive me. He doesn't say, because I've cleaned my act up in the last 24 hours. But he says, for your name's sake. So what is it about the name of God that would cause God to forgive And cause God to recognize that it's right that he be called to forgive because of his name. Well, God's name is mercy. God's name is love. For God so loved the world that he sent his only begotten son. God's reputation is at stake with him forgiving you. When you go to God, you ask him to forgive you for the sake of his reputation. Isn't that something? It glorifies God for him to forgive sins. Have you ever thought about that? Now, there's a huge difference between me saying that it glorifies God for him to forgive sins. And for me to say, and it is those sins that are most attractive to God. God hates sin. And it glorifies him to forgive them. But God does not find your sins attractive. That's what this guy in this book said. That's another quote from this book. No, 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 no. Your sin is horrible. It stinks to high heaven. The reason it glorifies God for him to forgive your sin is that God is the true God and all the gods of the nations are idols. The gods of the nations are never interested in forgiving sins. The most you can ever get with the gods of the nations are a transactional thing where you cut the head off of your rooster in Haiti or you sacrifice your children at Planned Parenthood in the United States if you're a Christian or you take pills to get rid of them, or with Moloch and Canaanite, and in Jerusalem, under God's kings, you put your little child in the mouth of Moloch, and he's burned alive. All the gods of the nations are idols. God, the only true God, forgives sins. And therefore it is to his glory and the glory of his name for you to ask him to forgive your sins. He's glorified by forgiving your sins. <laughs> and so here's the question. What's at stake whether or not you ask God to forgive your sins? Well, what's at stake is whether or not you're going to glorify your God or glorify yourself. <clears throat> Those are the only two choices. you with me you understand what I'm saying and God hates anybody to rob him of his glory when you won't ask God to forgive you for your sin you are attacking God straight on who is the man who fears the Lord he will instruct him in the way he should choose His soul will abide in prosperity and his descendants will inherit the land. And then going back and repeating, the secret of the Lord is for those who fear him and he will make them know his covenant. Listen, would you please notice the promise of the knowledge of God and of knowing God's ways is to those who fear him. There's nothing wrong with fearing God. Hearing God is the way that you get him to show himself to you. And so if you've had twisted pastors and podcasters and books and stuff that have tried to inoculate you against the fear of God, they're devils from hell. You don't trifle with God God is to be feared and it's a statement across scripture that the most wicked nations and people are those in whom there is no fear of God it's said again and again now at this point you've been taught all the answers that you should have to this to explain away the fear of God and make it less than it is. But who does God show himself to? He shows himself to those who fear him. He doesn't say, now, what I mean by fear is not a cringing sort of fear. I'm not a father who is, you know, just simply flying off half-cocked every time he is irritated by somebody. I don't want you to cringe Because after all, I'm a loving Heavenly Father and in all my ways, my deepest person is gentle and lowly. You know, all all the efforts we try to make to remove the plain truth of Scripture, which is that God heals the brokenhearted, shows himself to the humble, and teaches his covenant of grace to those who fear him. It's right for us to fear God. Every time I, I read this in scripture, it's everywhere in scripture. It's multiple times just in this little prayer. Every time I think of little Hannah when she was two or three. And, you know... I I, in the first service, I said, every dad likes to scare his little daughters. But then I realized, probably, that made me look like a monster. Huh? Your dad did, yeah. So then I said, well, some of us. And then I thought, well, I, I know I do. So, And I loved scaring Hannah. My boys loved scaring their mother. Little Hannah, little blonde. I was always deathly afraid she'd grow up to be a cheerleader bouncing around with blonde hair, happy, 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 you know? And if you caught her and scared her, what would happen? Her little body would go, you know, she'd like have an apoplectic fit, you know, like, and then what would she do next? She'd lunge at me and hug me. Right? That's what we do. That is what it is to be a Christian. To be a Christian is to look at God, to hear who he is in his word, to feel his glory, to hear him say, my name is jealousy. You see the mountain trembling. You don't touch the mountain because he said you shouldn't. The grave's open when his son dies. And so what do you do? You close with him. There's only two choices. One is to run and the other is to hug. And that's what the Christian life is. It is trusting that this God who scares us to death. This God forgives sin. And so we run to him. We run to him. And one of the sweet things about that is that when we're all at worship together, the thing that holds us in unity is that we've all run to him. And so there's a whole bunch of us with our arms around God None of us are there because we think we deserve to be there. We just knew we would be consumed if we weren't there. (laughs) And isn't that good enough? I mean, can we lower ourselves to just be so fearful that we believed in Jesus? My eyes are continually toward the Lord for he will pluck my feet out of the net. Turn to me and be gracious for me, to me for I am lonely and afflicted. The troubles of my heart are enlarged. Bring me out of my distresses. Look upon my affliction and my trouble and forgive all my sins. You know that Calvin at this point Says what virtually everybody across church history has said, which is it is common for God to afflict us, for Him to hide His face from us. It is common for us to suffer at the will of God. And when that happens, we need to examine ourselves, look for sin, and ask Him to forgive our sin and to restore us. when you realize that's never preached, never written in books today. As a matter of fact, I would almost say evangelicalism is a scheme to deny that central truth. When we suffer, we should expect that God is sovereign in our suffering and we should ask him to show his face to us. We should not think that suffering is just the fates at work that's pagan we believe in God we believe in God most especially when we suffer you know Bob Kapowitz didn't believe in God because he didn't suffer another way of saying it is if Bob hadn't suffered he wouldn't have believed in God now that may be wrong but I almost think it's right because I've seen a a direct line from suffering to holiness in my life and people that I've known. How do you think God's going to make you holy? You think it's going to come by eating cotton candy at the county fair? Which is basically what goes on in church Sunday mornings most times. No, 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 no. Calvin says what we all know is true, which is God often hides his face from us so that we will turn to him and ask him to forgive our sins. And so if you're somebody who really understands these prayers of King David and he's pleading for God to return to him, he's pleading for God to have mercy. He keeps saying, forgive my sin." Have faith to believe that God will forgive your sin. Take them to him. Take them to him. You say, well, I don't know if I can give them up, right? (laughs) Oh, my goodness. Uh, You can't. You can't give them up. That's not the agreement. The agreement is that you confess your sins to God and ask him to forgive them. And then 1 John 1, 9 says, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins. And the part of the verse that I like even better, and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Humble yourself for heaven's sakes! Humble yourself under the mighty hand of God. Not under me. I don't need you to humble yourself under me, don't worry. It ain't about you, me, any of us. It's about God and your immortal soul is at stake with you humbling yourself under God. And believing that when he says it glorifies him to forgive sin, that means you think what anybody else here is thinking about you. Not your mama nor your papa. It's me standing in the need of prayer. Look upon my enemies for they are many and they hate me with violent hatred. Guard my soul and deliver me. Do not let me be ashamed, for I take refuge in you. Verse 21, let integrity and uprightness preserve me, for I wait for you. You heard what he said. He wants his integrity and uprightness to preserve him. Now, a natural question would be, he just keeps going on and on about his sins, asking God to forgive him. Now he's saying he wants to be preserved by his integrity and uprightness, right? And this is true all through the book of Psalms. You've noticed again and again and again and again in the Psalms, they confess sin, they show their sin, they're trembling, and then they say, I am without spot or blemish. Look at my righteousness, God. You know, you know, you know that it does it in the book of Psalms. It just did it here. So what's the deal on it? Yesterday in an elders meeting, Max, Pastor Max, was explaining to us an observation of his life that although we have many sins as a church and as individuals, the enemies of God never attack us for our sins. And it's so weird. And he said, we could put our sins on display, you know, we could put them up in Craigslist or make signs, billboards, here are the sins of Trinity Reform Church. Here are the sins of Tim Bailey, of David Carell, you know? And he said, it wouldn't matter. They would not attack us for our sins. (laughs) And so what do they attack us for? Systematically, they attack us for our righteousness. Isn't that interesting? And so when David says my uprightness and my integrity defend me what he's saying is when I stand and have the wicked attacking me my defense is my uprightness and integrity because the very things they're attacking are that integrity and uprightness but that doesn't mean that David doesn't have horrendous sins that he needs forgiveness for it's just that our enemies are enemies against us for God's sake and for righteousness' sake. Do you see this? And so that's our defense when we're attacked by the worldlings who hate righteousness and hate God. And there's no contradiction for us to turn right around, ask God to show himself to us and say to him, my sins are many. Many. They fit together perfectly. I know your conscience is often assaulted by people who are wicked, who attack you. And so you think you must have done something wrong. You have. But that's not why you're being attacked. And so, plead with God to defend you through your uprightness and integrity. And be very careful to show your righteousness to the world. All right. Redeem Israel, O God, out of all his troubles. And that's the final statement. And. What's very sweet about that is that in the end, what David does is he doesn't ask for something for himself, but he asks for something for the people of God, which is the church. You know, it's not just me, God, but all of us here together. Help us. Vindicate us. Because we're all in this together. Don't be a loner Christian. There is no such thing. There's nobody who's godly who doesn't love the people of God. And so that's the end of the psalm and it's a beautiful end to see David selfless at the end, not focused on himself, but praying for the church. Let's pray. Father, we pray for our hearts that you will teach us to pray after the psalms, to love you, to fear you, to be humbled, And to always remind ourselves of your loving kindness and tender mercies. Which are from one generation to another. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.